Welcome to Crosswords, the podcast about practical Christianity. What does it look like to walk in Jesus' footsteps? How do I live in a culture hostile to godliness? These are questions that we'll answer on each podcast as we get our heart and mind on Jesus. All scriptures quoted are from the New International Version. You can follow me on Twitter at Kingdom underscore Saint. Walk with the Lord today and be a blessing. Good afternoon, everyone. I hope and pray that you're starting out this week leaning on the Lord, on the King Jesus. Remember, we're still on Tuesday, the last week of Jesus' life. He had been interrogated question after question in an attempt to trap him into saying the wrong thing. However, we see how the Lord answered every question perfectly, stumping everyone. And when it seemed like they were done with the questions, Jesus was not done with them. He's still now, now it's his time to ask them a question. So while the Pharisees were still gathered, Jesus asked them, what do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? And they answered, David. After all the questions, after all the perfect answers, now it's Jesus' turn to ask a question. Although the enemies, his enemies objected him to being the Messiah, they did not believe that. They never really engaged with him in a discussion about the subject. So Jesus is bringing up the subject now. After all, that's the most important subject they're talking about. He's attempting to engage them. He's aiming to discuss the nature of the Messiah because he knew they had misperceptions about him. They only focused on the physical, the lineage of David. All the Jews knew that the Messiah came through David's lineage. He was a descendant of King David. Remember, Christ is the Greek for Messiah. Messiah is the Jewish for anointed one or chosen one. To the Jews, the chosen one would have saved them from any physical or religious oppression by bringing David's kingdom into fruition, which is what they believed was about to happen. They knew it would be a permanent kingdom once the Messiah would come to rule, a kingdom that would never end. They all thought this was something that was going to happen physically, that was going to be observable by their eyes. The Messiah's kingdom would be Eden's restoration of harmony with God again, as promised in the book of Genesis. They were all leaning on that promise from long ago to restore Eden, to restore God and man in this divinic or messianic kingdom. To the Jews, that that's what in their mind they saw as a kingdom, like David's kingdom, like Solomon's kingdom that they would read of in the scriptures, dominating, controlling the world once more, subduing their enemies. The Jews' answer here is correct. Yes, he was David's son, the Messiah is David's son. However, their answer is incomplete. They needed to expand their understanding about the Messiah, about his purpose, and about what kind of a kingdom was he going to bring. So Jesus said to them, here's a little puzzling question, playing a bit of a devil's advocate, I guess. Uh, then how can David, guided by the Spirit, 
call him Lord. David said, quoting here from Psalm 110, verse 1, the Lord said to my Lord, take the highest position in heaven until I put your enemies under your control. So he throws them a curveball. <laughs> he, he's kind of attempting to show the incompleteness of their answer with these follow-up questions. Remember how teach, uh, Jesus likes to teach using questions. Great way to teach. So first, it's important to point out that Jesus testifies that the Spirit is the one inspiring the Scriptures. As he says here, how can David guided by the Spirit? So Jesus is confirming that the Word of God or that the Bible is God-breathed. It's coming through the Holy Spirit, which, by the way, the word the Holy Spirit, if you read, it, read that in the Hebrew, means God's breath. He is God's breath. Second, Jesus points out that David calls this Messiah Lord. Now, that was puzzling for them. This means that David's son, right? David's great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandson uh, all the way down the line, would have more authority than he? That's what Jesus is attempting to ask them. How can David call him Lord if he is his son? Of course, they were like stumped <laughs> by that question. How can that be? To understand Psalm 110 verse 1, which is what he's quoting here, the first Lord that he's referring to here when he says, the Lord said to my Lord, that first Lord is God the Father, Elohim, Yahweh. The second Lord is the Messiah, the Son, Jesus Christ. So Jesus says, if David calls him Lord, how can he be his son? No one could answer him. And from that time on, no one dared to ask him another question. They were like, okay, we're not going to play around with Jesus. How can David's son be David's Lord? Great question, right? Great way to kind of make him think about that. And this can only be answered by those who had spiritual wisdom. Perhaps you are stumped. Yeah, how does that work out? Uh, only if you have spiritual wisdom and you understand the nature and purpose of the Messiah can you provide a satisfactory answer. Because the Christ, the Son, the Messiah is so much more than David's son. He's so much more than a person. Remember, to them, they're thinking that the Messiah, even though he is God's chosen, he's a person. He's going to be a person who's going to come and deliver them. But Jesus is trying to tell them, no, he is more than that. The Messiah is more than just a person. Yes, he is the son of David. He is a descendant of David. We learn that by reading the genealogies in Matthew. Matthew 1, verse 6, Luke 3, 31. But he is also David's Lord. How can, how can we satisfy that? How can, he can be, how can he be his Lord? Because he predates David. He is David's creator. That's how. In Revelation twenty two sixteen, 16, Jesus says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give this testimony to you for the churches. I am the root and descendant of David. I am the bright morning star. Jesus is the son of God. He is Elohim. The Jews understood the Messiah was royalty, and they were correct about that. But what Jesus wanted them to understand is that he was deity as well. 
That's what they missed out on. It is important what we think of the Christ, because what we think about him is going to impact the way that we live. So something pivotal happens at this point on this Tuesday, and we're going to pick up the story in John. Some Greeks were among those who came to worship during the Passover festival. They went to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and told him, Sir, we would like to meet Jesus. Philip told Andrew, and they told Jesus. I don't know if you recall, but in Matthew chapter 10, verse 5, Jesus had told his disciples that he was sent to the lost sheep of Israel. Therefore, they were not to go to the Gentiles. So imagine their surprise now when the Gentiles come to them and ask them, we want to meet Jesus. So Philip is like, uh, okay, let me ask Andrew about this to make sure I go about it the right way. Uh, they were wondering what to do, what to do. John, by the way, is the only gospel writer who tells us of this account. The Jewish leaders didn't want any more from Jesus. They had given up on him. They just wanted to kill him. They wanted him out of the way. Some just wanted to see Jesus to be entertained, as we will see later on in the account, like Herod. He only wanted to see Jesus because he wanted to see some kind of miracle. They had refused to believe he is the Christ. Right? They wanted to actually condemn him for that. But now we have these Greeks. Now we have these Greeks probably traveling some way to come and see Jesus. What were they doing at this Jewish festival? They were Greeks. But the news had reached their ears. Now the Gentiles want to know, who is this man? Who is this Christ? And no wonder, this is a pivotal point, because now Jesus is going to say something. He's going to say, the time has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. So Jesus tells us, he indicates to us, as of this time when these Greeks are coming in, the Jews have rejected him. The Greeks are coming in. They want to know this is a pivotal time. The time has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now, some, when they heard this, they were like, okay, wow. Imagine you hearing this. You're believing Jesus is the Messiah for those who did that. The time for the Son of Man to be glorified has come. Oh, is the kingdom going to happen now? Is that going to happen? Remember that they had uh, received Jesus, his triumphal entrance into Jerusalem. Oh, is it going to happen? Is the kingdom going to come at this time? And by the way, this is very possibly the last public sermon Jesus gives. What we're going to be reading is the very last public sermon. Some believe this text happened on a Monday, but many commentators place it on a Tuesday, right after Jesus observed the widow giving all she had at the treasury. And this is the only incident recorded by John between the triumphant entry on Sunday and the Last Supper on Friday. The time has come. In other translations, it'll say the hour has come. What was this hour? What was this time? And I'm going to submit to you that this was the hour of the cross. It was an hour of many things. It was an hour of decision for Jesus. The hour of no turning back. Because the time had come 
for the Son of Man to be glorified. It is the hour of the cross because suffering precedes victory. A cross precedes a crown. This is how we understand it post-cross. However, the crowds hearing Jesus saying these things, they're getting very excited for the, for the wrong reason. Is it time for God's kingdom to come? Is it time for the Romans to be subdued, for the Messiah to triumph and deliver us over our enemies? But as we're going to read in the following verses that come after Jesus makes this declaration of the time has come for the Son of Man to be glorified, Jesus is going to use the analogy of a kernel of wheat to describe what must happen to the Christ in order for this glorification to happen. And this is going to go in keeping with the doctrine we see Jesus continually teaching throughout the entire book of John and the other gospels. Everything Jesus did was for the glory of the Father. When the Son was glorified, it was to bring glory to the Father, not necessarily to bring glory to the Son. Jesus says that numerous times. Even if death was the result, it was to be done to the glory of the Father. This, show, this shows Jesus' concern to please the Father, knowing that the Father's concern is to please the Son and really all of us here, because remember, we're the ones who are going to benefit from all these things that Jesus is going to do. And that's the essence of the relationship in Elohim. They're all working together to bring about this amazing plan of salvation for you. And we're clueless. <laughs> we're just sitting there like dumb animals, not knowing what is happening around us. Until perhaps maybe we realize a little bit. What is this that this man called the Christ has done? And why did he do it for us? Because that's what he's trying to tell us here. This hour of the cross really is a seven-fold test. It was a seven-fold test for Christ and for the people hearing him that day. But for us, 2,000 years later, anytime we read these words, it is a seven-fold test, this hour of the cross. We're faced with many things here. And we're going to go through them. Commitment, conflict, confirmation, conquest, conversion, confusion, and challenge. Jesus says, I can guarantee this truth. Remember, this is the last public sermon. A single grain of wheat doesn't produce anything unless it is planted in the ground and dies. If it dies, it will produce a lot of grain. What's on Jesus' mind right now? Death. Death will happen. A time of death, a time of suffering for the Messiah, and not just for the Messiah, but for the followers. This is not what the people were expecting. If Jesus says the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified, and the people get excited, and then they hear him talking about death. Whoa, <laughs> wait a minute. Is, is, that's not what's supposed to happen now. So there was some confusion there. That's where the confusion comes in. But remember, this is an upside-down kingdom. This is God's kingdom. What you least expect to happen is probably the route God is going to take in order to do his will. And death needed to happen, as Jesus explains here using this analogy, in order for a lot of fruit to be produced, to produce a harvest. So he gives them a commitment, the hour of commitment. Those who love their lives will destroy them. And those who hate their lives in this world 
will guard them for everlasting life. He's asking them to make a commitment. Jesus had to make a commitment himself. I'm going to go through with this. Remember that God had given Jesus the authority that at any moment he could call 10,000 angels and say, I'm out of here. <laughs> I don't think these people deserve to be saved. <laughs> but he didn't do that. This was a time of decision, a time of commitment. But the same goes for us hearing these words. Jesus says, what are you going to love more, your life here? Is that what you're going to live for? Or are you going to put your life here in perspective to eternity, which is what I'm here for, Jesus says. It is the hour of commitment. Jesus says, those who serve me must follow me. My servants will be with me wherever I will be. If people serve me, the Father will honor them. Jesus is encouraging us to seek the honor that comes from God, not from man. Living a life here and loving the world is all about trying to gain man's favor or really trying to please yourself. But Jesus is, is saying, no, seek what comes from God. Seek to Seek the honor that comes from God for the honor that will be attributed to you by God the Father. Finding yourself right there where Jesus is at. This was an hour of conflict. Jesus says, I am too deeply troubled to know how to express my feelings. I can relate. When Jesus says this, I'm like, wow. You know, even the Son of Man had trouble finding the words to express his sorrow, his emotion, his trouble. And I love what he says here. Should I say, Father, save me from this time of suffering? Which is what we would say, wouldn't it be? God, save me from this moment. God, get me out of here. <laughs> I'm going to quit because I can't stand this job. Or I'm going to leave this place or whatever it is. Our tendency is to run away. Hey, Jesus understands that. He was right there. He was tempted to. And remember, don't forget, God told him, hey, if you want to go, I'm, I'm with you. I'm behind you. You don't have to feel bad about it. Call 10,000 angels. I'll rescue you. God wasn't, God wasn't going to think any less of Jesus if that's what he chose. But then where would that leave us? So think about that. The hour of conflict. We face we will face many trials, and we already have. That's going to leave us deeply troubled, and sometimes we can't express our emotions like Jesus is saying here. But what gives me great comfort is knowing that, hey, that's exactly why Jesus walked in my shoes, to become an adequate high priest for me, to become the person, my idol, so that I can look to him, know that he understands me, know that he rescues me from any trouble. Nobody knows, like the old song says, the trouble I've seen. Nobody knows but Jesus. He knows. He continually offered prayers to the Lord as a result of this. That's why Jesus prayed so much. Jesus teaches us the habits that we must attain to really be in sync with the Spirit. And particularly at times like this, when we're so troubled that we forget our purpose, but Jesus didn't forget about it. Instead of giving up or avoiding the trouble ahead, he dove right into it. And he triumphed over it, though it did cost him his life, which is why he says, 
Love, if you love this life more, then you're going to lose your real life. But if you lose this life, you will gain eternal life, which is exactly what Jesus did. So he cries out, Father, give glory to your name. And a voice from heaven said, I have given it glory and will give it glory again. The crowd standing there heard a voice and said that it had thundered. Others in the crowd said an angel had talked to him. Jesus replied, that voice wasn't for my benefit, but for yours. This is the hour of confirmation. This is God, the Father, confirming what's about to happen. See, because right in the middle of trouble, isn't that when we get God's confirmation on something? If we're seeking his face, right in the middle of the trouble, when we're so deeply troubled that we don't know what to say, if we seek the face of God, we're going to get confirmation right in the middle. And Jesus is teaching us that too. Here is Jesus' goal and focus to bring glory to the Father. But see, it takes that attitude, just like it, he said here, Father, give glory to your name. That's what we need to say when we find ourselves at the bottom of the barrel. Give glory to your name, Father. And God is going to confirm it. He's going to confirm to us what we must do. We just have to be willing to approach God with a lot of humility. Learn to be corrected. Even Jesus had to learn obedience. He had to learn humility. So if he had to learn that being the son of God, the Messiah, the chosen, where does that leave you and I? God gets the credit for our growth. You know, this is the third time Jesus gets confirmation from the Father. The first time was at his baptism. Remember when we went over that? Everybody heard the voice. They saw the dove coming down, laying on Jesus' shoulder. The second time Jesus gets confirmation was during the transfiguration, when he took Peter, James, and John with him to the top of the mountain. And there again, they heard the voice confirming, this is my son whom I love. And so here's the third and final time. God gives confirmation. The world is being judged now. The ruler of this world will be thrown out now. This was the hour of conquest. Is Jesus saying here that from this moment on, Satan will be crippled? That his effect on the world will be crippled somehow because the ruler will be thrown out? Remember that what happened on Calvary 2,000 years ago was designed to bring judgment on sin and the effect sin has, has on us. Jesus was the judge, and instead of condemning the world, like he said, I didn't come to condemn the world, but to save the world. But there was going to be a time if we ignored his words, those very words would judge us on the last day. But he says that when he lifted himself up, when he was lifted up on the cross, the effect of the devil will be crippled. Like that old prophecy, the proto-gospel back in Genesis, he would crush the serpent's head as the serpent bit him on the heel. Biting on the heel is not a mortal wound, but having your head crushed is. So Satan would be literally crushed. And brothers and sisters, we live in a blessed time. Because from that day till now, Satan's impact has been greatly lessened because he not only has been judged, but his kingdom 
has been crippled, mortally wounded. Even in the book of Revelation, we're given that analogy with the dragon receiving a mortal wound on his head. And that is thanks to Jesus Christ. You have to realize that in the midst of your trouble and your decision and your challenge, you have conquered. Don't forget that. That's part of the hour of the cross, that it is an hour of conquest. Conquest over the sin that intends to rule over you. If you like this podcast, please show your support by clicking on the support link on my Anchor FM profile. This ensures I will continue producing authentic Christian content as the Lord allows me. Thank you and have a blessed day. The devil has been conquered. You have to realize he doesn't have any say over you. You have to let God have the say in your life now. Jesus continues, when I have been lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people toward me. By saying this, he indicated how he was going to die. So it was an hour of conversion. That same conflict, that same conquest, all these things would also bring about an hour of conversion. He is the only cure for man's sin. Healing, salvation, regeneration, redemption can only come when we put our faith in the Son of God and His redemptive plan for mankind. We don't have any plan to redeem ourselves. Even what we may think may redeem us cannot do it. But if we surrender to His redemption plan, then we will be converted to Him, not to anything else. Only a compassionate God that is full of love can overlook such atrocious sin and decide to save us rather than to judge us. Because he knows that judgment is is only going to bring us death. So the crowd responded to him. We've heard from the scriptures that the Messiah will remain here forever. So how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up from the earth? Who is this Son of Man? So here you can see there is a time of confusion. Because when you're challenged, when you're faced with all these things, with the hard choices... When you're deeply troubled, sometimes there is a bit of confusion thrown there into the mix. And I believe that confusion is just designed for us to turn to God and not to lean on our own hearts. Because where does the confusion come from? From our limited understanding. Like these people, they didn't know who the Son of Man was. They didn't know who the Messiah was. They didn't know His real purpose. And when we don't, when we rely on our heart and our own understanding, it's going to be a time of confusion. But a little confusion must be in our lives in order for us to turn to the one who will unconfuse us. And that is the Lord God. John 12, 35. Jesus answered the crowd, the light will still be with you for a little while. Walk while you have the light so that the darkness won't defeat you. Those who walk in the dark don't know where they are going. Here is the challenge. Notice how it seems that Jesus evaded the question, who is this son of man? Well, he already was trying to tell them who he was. But he is telling them, isn't he in this answer? He is answering who the son of man is. He's telling them that he won't be around much longer. The light will still be with you for a little while. 
After all, that's what he had said, right? I am the way, the truth, the life. I am the light of the world. He had told them these things before. It seems that now the son of man himself, he's telling them he won't be around much longer. Remember, this is probably Jesus' last sermon. He was about to leave them. So in the, in the following verses, which I'm not going to read them, they just reiterate the unbelief, the reaction of the crowd after Jesus had said all these things. They still didn't believe, even though God had given plenty of signs, plenty of miracles, but they still didn't believe those things. They didn't believe because, as verse 40 says, they were closed-minded. They had closed their mind. They weren't willing to believe and accept what God was doing. They thought that it had to be a certain way. When we have preconceived notions, when we're prejudiced in that way, presumptive, we are closed-minded to God's plan in our lives. These leaders who believe, some believe, as it says in verse 43, but they wouldn't, they wouldn't admit it publicly because they were more concerned about what others thought of them than what God thought of them. So sometimes our faith gets thwarted because we're still more concerned about the things in this life than about what God thinks of us. This is a challenge for us to think about. Indeed, it is the hour of the cross, the hour of the sevenfold test that comes upon us every time we have to think about the gospel, every time we think about this last weeks of Jesus' life, every time we scrutinize the scriptures, and see all that Jesus had to go through, we ourselves are tested in these ways. Our commitment to God and to the world is tested. Who are you going to commit to? Will conflict in your heart and mind turn you to God? Or will it turn you to rely on yourself? Will your faith in Christ be confirmed? Will you accept God's signs and God's confirmation on the Christ? Or... Will it be your love for the world that is confirmed in how you turn your heart to the world? Will you join Christ in the conquest of sin and evil that rules this world? Or will you surrender and have the world conquer you? Which one will it be? Will you give your heart, soul, mind, and strength over to Jesus, the King, your Savior? Will you be converted or will you just keep going along with the world? Will you let confusion reign or conversion reign in you? Will you be up for this challenge or will you cower away in darkness? The hour of the cross of the sevenfold test. Now listen carefully to Jesus' final words in public. Then Jesus said loudly, starting in verse 44, whoever believes in me believes not only in me, but also in the one who sent me. Whoever sees me sees the one who sent me. I am the light that has come into the world so that everyone who believes in me will not live in the dark. If anyone hears my words and doesn't follow them, I don't condemn them. I didn't come to condemn the world, but to save the world. Those who reject me by not accepting what I say have a judge appointed for them. The words that I have spoken will judge them on the last day. I have not spoken on my own. Instead, the Father who sent me told me what I should say and how I should say it. I know that what he commands, 
is eternal life. Whatever I say is what the Father told me to say. In his last words in public, Jesus is pleading with the crowd. He's pleading with you whenever you hear these words, which every one of you who are hearing online or hearing in present, whenever you read them in the Bible, what is the conclusion you come to? What do you believe about the Son of Man? As the song says, what will you do with Jesus? This is the message that sweeps throughout the whole world. Once more, as you hear it, how is your heart convinced? How are you accepting of all the tests that are thrust upon you here on this earth, including the sevenfold test? Because by the way, every time we go through a crossroads in our life, it is the hour of the cross, isn't it? All over again. <laughs> it's a little bit of a challenge. It's a bit of a confusion. There's a conquest. There's a conflict. All these things happen. It's amazing. And it's all designed to really get us to focus, to make a commitment like Jesus did and set our face to the cross, whatever cross it is that we're carrying and let our heart be caught up in God, not in the world, not in our passion, certainly not in whatever emotions are trying to sweep over us at the moment. Are you convinced that Jesus is the Christ? He came to atone for our sin. He put himself through this test in order so that we can now gain that atonement. Atonement, by the way, just, just means to have our sins forgiven. It's something that pleases God to deliver us from our sins, to keep us or make us clean so that our sins won't be offensive to him anymore. We can't do that on our own, but Jesus did it for us. And he did it through this sacrifice of giving up himself on the cross in order, as the Bible says in Romans 4.25, when he was raised from the dead, he brought us justification. That means we're right. We can be right before God. Even though we're wrong, <laughs> we can be right before God. Not by anything you did or want to do or however great intentions you may have. Because intentions, great intentions is what paves the road to hell, as people say. But we have something better. Justification by what Jesus did on the cross for us. But we must be convinced that he is the Christ. And join him in baptism to remove the obstacle of sin that clouds our judgment, that clouds our eyes, that clouds our decisions. Because our heart typically just becomes so very passionate for whatever interest we have in this life at the moment. And when we're young, even more so. I'm not saying that older folk don't have passions. They sure do. <laughs> but typically, I remember when I was young, man, you know, I was... I was thrown off course left and right by whatever passions and interests were placed before me. And so I had to remember this hour of the cross and uh, remember to give myself over to Christ because he's the only one that can give us joy, give us peace, all through suffering. Remember that there is a cross to bear before you can wear the crown. I appeal to you, if you haven't been baptized today, to make this the day to receive the righteousness of Christ. That's why we have that word there, righteousness. When we join him in baptism, we die with him, as Romans 6, 3, and 4 says. 
We're buried with him through baptism, just like as Jesus was raised from the dead, we're raised to walk in newness of life with a righteousness not our own. But now, once we have the righteousness of Christ, any good thing that we might do now in our life is justified by God, is recognized by him as good because we're doing it in Christ, not by our own authority anymore, but because we have, we're clothed with Christ as Gerard was saying. And that makes all the difference. That makes all the difference in the world because he justified me in spite of my sin. So I encourage you, if you have been baptized already, but you're still struggling maybe with one of those tests in the sevenfold test of the cross, maybe there's something that you're struggling with at the moment, I invite you to come forward and pray with us after services is over. Let's see God together. Let's seek his face through all the challenges that we face at this, at this time. Because there are always going to be challenges coming up. And as a body, as, as brothers and sisters, as a family of God, it's great to be together and seek the face of God together. Uh, so that all wisdom which comes from him can help us navigate these trials. God bless you.